Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Welcome to this first episode of 2023. I hope everyone is having a hopeful first few days of the new year. I try to appreciate fresh starts. And while I'm not big on resolutions or anything like that, which I think is big, especially in the Western world, I do try to be intentional about what I can do differently and how I can improve. And I can tell you that 2022 was a rough year for myself personally and a little bit professionally. And I think it was for a lot of people. I also struggled with more mental health things than I have in a while. So that created a bit of a damper and just made it harder to give myself grace because I tend to still get frustrated with myself, even if I do have a perfectly good reason in my neurological pathways for why I have a hard time responding to all emails or keeping up on different things. But so that's where I'm at as far as learning some of those things. I hope you've had a chance to do that as well. I wish I could say I feel rested and rejuvenated for this next year. I don't yet, but I think I will soon. We didn't get as much time off the last two weeks as my husband and I planned. Both of us had more work than we realized. And especially because I'm self-employed and I can't just hand it off to someone else. And he's working on a big project right now. We kind of had a working holiday, but we did take a couple of days off. So anyway, even though we're just a few days in, I hope that it's off to a good start that you're feeling good and that in the industry that we're in, it's not going to be all sunshine and roses. But I do think it's important to try to impact what we can change and understand what we can't as well and, and accept that too. So that's kind of where I just wanted to start with that. But also just kind of housekeeping, we're going to have one episode of Fraudology this week because it's kind of a short week and because of scheduling the first interview episode that I have scheduled for 2023 couldn't happen until after the new year. So it's going to be really good. I think you'll look forward to it. It'll be myself and two other really brilliant fraud experts talking about what we predict for 2023, not just in e-commerce, but also in banking and in fintech and other areas within online fraud. So something to look forward to next Tuesday. And then I'll be back on Thursday with another solo episode and a deep dive. And I think for that one, I will be diving in on a few e-commerce specific topics there. And I also just wanted to thank you guys for those of you who filled out the Fraudology listener survey last year. It really was helpful in guiding myself and my team on how we can improve for you. And one of those ways is by having shorter episodes, which I will try. Yes, I am talkative, but I'm also a nerd. And when we are nerds, we're passionate about the details, especially when it comes to fraud, because it's those details that make a difference between something being good and something being risky. But I will work on that on keeping them under 45 minutes as a general rule. And then also by realizing that we've expanded our audience and wanting to expand some of the topics and guests as well. So into banking, into other areas of fraud prevention, in addition to e-commerce and marketplaces. So of course, that's still going to be my wheelhouse, but I'm looking forward to 
adding some guests that I know a lot of you will learn from. No matter what type of company you work for now, more and more the lines between banking fraud and e-commerce fraud are getting blurrier by the day. Not just because there's now finance as a service and all of those things, but also just fraudsters don't care, right? If you're a bank or a merchant, they just want to get their money. So I think there's a lot of things that can be learned from both sides. So some of what I'm planning for 2023, and I'll share more of that as the year goes on and probably even within Q1, I hope. But I hope that you've all had a good new year. You've had time to rest and rejuvenate a little bit and feel like you're ready to get started into the new year. I was really hoping to have this first episode of the year be light and kind of help us ease into the new year. But over the last two weeks, I've started to see a trend in headlines that is worrying me. And I know that a lot of people weren't paying attention to the headlines or just haven't had time to dive into the details. So I did that for you, especially because from that survey, I especially learned, and just from those of you who reach out on a regular basis, and I just always really appreciate it. I know that a lot of the reasons why you listen to the podcast is in part to learn what's coming and what to look for and what you need to know. And so I'm here to provide it. Even if I'm like, oh, this is not the way to start a new year, guys. Again, fraudsters don't care. So anyway, if any vendor comes up with a t-shirt that says fraudsters are like honey badgers, they just don't give up, then I expect some royalties on the back end. I'm teasing, but it really is similar to that. <laughs> they really just don't give a crap what silo we're in, if it's cybersecurity or fraud, or if it's this or if it's that. They don't care if we just had a holiday or not. It doesn't matter. So and then after going into what has happened and what I think is important to know and be prepared for. I'm also going to provide some action items for fraud fighters and practitioners, those of you who work for e-commerce companies, for marketplaces, for fintechs, for banks, those of you in on the ground in fraud, but also for the solution providers that support them, because we need to all be working together. And I know sometimes I've kind of isolated some of my conversations to solution providers in specific episodes, and I will continue to do that. But, you know, as it came up with Gil and I in the last new episode of 2022 last year, we can't put those in segments and silos either. We all need to be working together. We can't say it's an us versus them. Now, that does not mean that we can't, that we don't still need to segregate conversations because unfortunately, one bad apple can ruin the bunch, et cetera. But, you know, I think that for those of you solution providers who continue to say, you know, we need to be working together, I would challenge you to say, okay, well, I'm going to provide some ways that you can start working together and showing your current customers as well as future ones that you take this fight seriously and you want to help them. And it's up to you to decide if you're going to take that challenge. And if you are, it will be noticed. So here are the three headlines that caught my attention most in the last three weeks. And I think you'll start seeing a theme. So the first one is 400 million Twitter users data is reportedly for sale in the black market. The next one is that Okta or OKTA, I'm not exactly sure how you say it, but they're a password manager, confirms another breach after hackers steal source code. And the third and probably the biggest one to me, and I think to all of you too, is LastPass finally admits those crooks who got in, they did steal your password vault after all. I'll give you a minute to say all the expletives that you need to. I laugh because I don't think anyone wants to hear me crook. <laughs> That's really what it is. So while those headlines could be categorized a few years ago as just cybersecurity news, like I just mentioned a few minutes ago, it's critical for those of us in fraud to know about these two. And there really aren't as many silos as 
there used to be. So we all know that data that's breached will be used to commit fraud to monetize the data. Granted, there's some caveats there. There are state-sponsored breaches that if that is the number one intent is to gain information about a specific country or how they do things or their citizens, then that might be the first usage. But depending on the country and the majority of ones that are targeting Western countries anyways with cybersecurity data breaches, will often use them first, but then they will sell that data usually to fraud rings and organized crime rings within their country to chum the waters as well as to kind of spread the wealth. But I believe for these next several, we can see exactly how they, they will be monetized, whether that's right away or down in the future. It's, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's really, really scary. It's important to look at the types of exposed data to be aware of the specific threat, right? So I've talked about this before on several other episodes, but if credit card numbers are breached, for example, which really hasn't happened since the late 2010s, mid-2010s, if we're being honest, then we know that it's probably mostly going to be payment fraud, right? But then if it's going to be when one of the largest credit bureaus was breached, it was all information from social security number to mother's maiden name to addresses, past addresses, employers, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those things can be used for a litany of fraud. So it's kind of a way that we can read the tea leaves of what type of fraud should we be expecting in the next weeks or months or years is by what data is being breached. I'm going to start with Twitter. A little background information. A hacker named Ryushi, I might be saying that right, R-Y-U-S-H-I, was demanding like several million dollars from Twitter. There were some conflicting reports on what exactly he was demanding, but at first he was demanding, I think, 237 million USD from Elon Musk because of GDPR penalties. He was basically saying, pay me or else you're going to have to pay the GDPR penalties. And it was extortion. And it was, I have gathered over 400 million Twitter users' credentials and information, and I will sell it. Ben heard a later story that he was just selling it as one big file for 200,000 USD. So that, it doesn't totally matter for our purposes how much, but I try to get as much detail correct on here, not only because I don't want to get sued, but because, again, details matter. But in his, you know, advertisement, what struck me, and this started going around on LinkedIn on Christmas Eve, thanks for that Hudson Rock, that's the company that first identified it as a credible threat, was that not only did the hacker advertise that he had done this, he then provided about a thousand well-known names, celebrities, Kevin O'Leary, Brian Krebs, he's a popular cybersecurity blogger, other well-known names, with the information he had on them. And Hudson Rock was able to go through and say, oh, these look like they, these credentials belong to them. This information, this PII belongs to these people. So it was his proof. Then he provided a list of all the ways that it could be monetized, which I thought was very helpful of him. I mean, most fraudsters can figure that out real fast, depending on what data is available. But I don't always see that when, actually, I rarely see that when I've seen past advertisements from hackers selling data is usually they just let you figure out how to make money from that data. In this case, he was listing all the different ways. So he was very helpful in that way. The other worry is obviously it would provide true identities, especially for crypto Twitter to help reveal who those people are behind that. There was a previous breach of like 5.2 million records that wasn't very high quality from what I could gather. A few months ago, this appears to be different, different sources, different information, etc. So some of the main methods of fraud 
from this information could be, oh, sorry, I guess I should probably tell you what information it was first. Sorry about that. Where did I list that? <laughs> sorry, guys. So it was name, it was email. It was, those were the two big ones, but then there was other information as well. Oh, name, email, phone number were all included in that. So some of the main methods of fraud from this information could be targeted phishing campaigns via text and email, SIM swap attacks to pass multi-factor authentication and get access to account. One person said that even with just a phone number, it's relatively easy to find anyone's address and bank account info, which I was like, or maybe just who the bank is. So they can then provide a very realistic phishing text saying, hey, blank, like, hey, Carice, this is this bank. Instead of just saying where your bank, the naming the specific bank and then all of that. There's some reason to think that there might be some payment information attached to it where they could get that would be the first six digits of the credit card. It's going to be tokenized. So they're not going to the merchant isn't going to start the full 16. But if they were able to get the first six digits, then that would help them know what bank it was. Sim swaps obviously are going to be continuing to rise. I know that there are a lot of cell carriers trying to do what they can, but they're, they've had their hands tied a little bit with some different regulations within the U.S. as well as other countries for how quickly phone numbers need to be ported over to a competitor. And so that really makes it difficult for them to verify identity and all that. Access to that information and then, you know, doxing of private info, right? If you've got all these celebrities, there's a lot of people that would probably love that information and not just celebrities. There's political figures, the people that unfortunately other countries would probably like to know where they are and how to get a hold of them. So the hacker provided the emails and phone numbers of about a thousand Twitter users as proof and included the verified information for, oh, so a few other people besides Kevin O'Leary and Brian Krebs included Pierce Morgan. He's a UK political commentator. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's a congresswoman in the U.S. You can use your imagination to think about if they had the cell phone number and the email address that that person registered their Twitter to, and especially if they registered their Twitter 10 years ago, they probably didn't think, oh, I should use a spam account. I'm going to use the same email I use for my banking information. It, it can cause some damage. So for customers, the advice is to make sure that two-factor authentication settings are turned on for all accounts via an app, not just a phone number because of SIM swapping, and to change passwords, store securely, and use private, self-hosted, or cold storage for crypto wallets. I think the fear of crypto Twitter getting segmented very quickly in this and go, okay, well, anyone who's posting about crypto continuously on Twitter probably has crypto accounts somewhere that can make things scarier because obviously we know that once it's gone, it's gone. For merchants, this is, you know, we know it's already be the case, but this is where I really wanted to dive in on this part. So the verification of name, address, phone number, email, etc., like matching an individual in an order or in an account setup if you're in fintech or banking is not authenticating that the, that person is the one placing the order or creating the account or using an existing account. I realize that half of you probably rolled your eyes like, yeah, no, duh. But unfortunately, when I learn about different companies' risk stacks, Really, they're just authenticating that the information being used is matches the same person. And unfortunately, the more access that bad actors have to this information, the less likely that is that that is really them, right? So they might have my phone number, my email, my address, my bank, all those pieces of information. But are they really me? You need to keep that in mind. This information was reliable for several years. 
But there's just too much data out there for bad actors, either through these kinds of breaches or via their access to data verification systems to fill in the blanks and confirm all the information that they use will match the victim. I'm going to go more into all of this in another episode because I really want to dive into more of that as far as why we just can't rely on that alone and you really need to look at the data sources, etc. I think what's even worse than the breach of information from Twitter is the fallout of two data breaches on two large password managers. One of them is probably the largest used by consumers and the confirmation that the bad actors do and will most likely gain access to not only the user's master password, but all of the passwords within their vault. This is terrifying for so many levels. We already have so many account takeovers with credential stuffing and with brute force and password crackers are getting really good. But now we have two, well, primarily one of them that was breached and it's bad. So basically when I heard about the data breach, especially at LastPass, the first thing I thought was, oh shit, ATOs are going to get a hundred times worse. After diving into this more, I'm like, hmm, now they're going to get like a thousand times worse. So with LastPass, news of the data breach first came out in August of 2022, but we didn't think too much of it because in their statement, they said, we've seen no evidence that this incident involved any access to consumer data or encrypted password vaults. So I think a lot of people were just like, okay, yep, somebody tried to gain access. Makes sense that they would try. They didn't get in. All right, we'll move on with our lives. But... And that attack led to another one in November that was way worse. And the data that was breached is believed to include data such as email, phone, address, payment card information, which, again, because it's tokenized, probably won't be the full 16. Even if it was, that's fairly easy to have shut down at the bank. However, what's worse is knowing the first six. And if they have the first six and last four, that makes, I mean, those phishing texts and emails and calls write themselves, right? Hey, this is Sue from Blah Bank calling about your credit card ending in da 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 da. That's a lot more believable, right? That's we're starting to train consumers. If somebody just calls and says they're from your bank and they can't verify any of your information, not to give them anything. But the more they can verify, the more they can set you at ease that they are who they say they are especially if they spoof the phone number to have it call from your bank, etc. In addition to that, probably what's even worse is that they have all the IP addresses that were accessing LastPass. So oh, they also have the company names that people work for and the URLs of all the websites. So in plain text is every single website. And then a little bit encrypted is the password. I'll go into that a little bit in a minute, but they now know which websites each customer shops at, which can also provide quite a profile and provide a lot of opportunities for phishing and targeted information. But I think the IP address piece is scary too, because of obviously of emulators, they know the password, the IP that you almost always access LastPass with. That's probably the IP address that you also use to log into your bank information, log into your email, log into all of your shopping accounts, your Airbnb, you know, any of those things where you know, you have payment information on file, your alternative payments like PayPal and Google Pay and Apple Pay and all of that. So this gets really scary. Password vaults aren't as encrypted as most people believed. Like I said, each URL is unencrypted. So security experts think that there's more that's unencrypted in the vaults too. What I read from some articles was that people think that while the master password is not something that is stored by LastPass, it is only known by the user. 
there's enough clues about people out there where you can either do credential stuffing, where you've seen 10 breaches of their password before, and they're all variations of their dog's name. Well, okay, it's probably going to be a variation of their dog's name for LastPass. Or using password crackers. I mean, depending on the length of the password, it can be cracked fairly quickly. So some are saying that they're worried primarily and mostly for the people who really relied on LastPass to take care of their security and maybe didn't understand why it was important to have, you know, more than 12 digits in a password or have it be a complex phrase versus just a few words or why it needs to be different than any other password they've had. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. So that's probably going to be the lowest hanging fruit. And basically, security experts are now saying that we just need to assume that all other passwords will be accessible. Plus, with all the other customer data out there, not just from this breach, but from others, it wouldn't be too difficult to socially engineer or to get a master password reset. Yeah, so I'm sorry, guys. Like I said, I really don't like to start the new year off this way, but it's terrifying. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Additionally, the Okta or OKTA, another password manager company, they suffered a breach also, but it was after hackers stole some of their source code. And that wasn't on Okta's systems directly. It was through GitHub. It looks like it didn't impact any of the customer information or anything else. It was primarily their workforce identity cloud, but that's a concern for business email compromise and malware and targeted phishing and all that. So it's not as bad as LastPass and definitely not an immediate threat for monetization right now, but all three of these breaches were announced in the last two weeks. So that tells me that, hmm, you know, once you start doing trend analysis, you always do it right. So, hmm, <laughs> this 
concerns me. We thought that last year was the year of ATO. I don't know. This next year might be worse. And that's why it's important to get prepared now. We can choose to just let it happen to us and say, okay, this is going to be bad. There's nothing we can do about it. Or we can say, okay, well, let's get as prepared as we possibly can. And that's where I always go to. So you have to assume that bad actors will have the user's password and all of their account information now, including their IP address. Because of emulators, because of all the other information out there that can be kind of Frankenstein together to put together a really full profile of someone, as well as all the other tools that they have at their disposal, from SIM swaps at the cell phone carrier to brute force attacks, password crackers, etc. New account fraud will also be a concern, especially in banking and crypto, financial services, all payment methods like PayPal, Apple Pay, etc., peer-to-peer money transfers, and all of that, as well as some merchant accounts. I mean, just it's it's a lot. But here is what you can do about it. And this is what I really wanted to focus the rest of today's episode on. Like I said, we don't know if this is going to happen in weeks or in months, but you don't have that much time. So we know that already account takeovers are bad. But if we just assume that they're going to get worse, here are some things that I would recommend. This is the consultant in me. This is kind of the person that works with so many different fraud practitioners. This is what I would recommend. So first, review your current risk stack, you know, all the fraud technology, as well as your overall fraud screening processes and fraud prevention identification and detection processes. And kind of give yourself a hypothetical. Do this as a team, as a group, because it's not that one leader is going to know all of this, right? Get your team together as a team exercise and ask them. If a fraudster has a legitimate user's password, email, IP address, phone number, if they could do a SIM swap, if you know what you have in your accounts is high value and worth their time, as well as their address, can and will they gain access to your user's accounts? I would bet right now about 50% or maybe more of the companies listening are like, oh, yep, those are all the things we check. Talk to your fraud and identity providers. They need to step up their game and invest in research and development and innovation again. And if they don't, they'll be left behind. And I have a little bit more about that in a few minutes for those solution providers directly. But for those of you who are practitioners, reach out to them and say, hey, how are you going to deal with this? If a user has all this information, how are you going to detect if it's account takeover? Don't take their buzzwords. You need to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing. Some providers are better at providing those people than others, but really to ease your mind, right? What else are they looking at? Are they looking at behavior? Are they looking at device? Well, what about the device? They're not just looking at the number, right? What else are they looking at? All of those other pieces. The other important thing is to communicate new threats to leadership. The obvious reason is for new budget approval, for new technical assessments, maybe new people and resources. There are ways to do it lean, but you still need to have project plans and products and managers and all of that. And I know from talking to a lot of you that this next year, your budget has been cut. You're being expected to do more with less. So make sure you really explain the story to your leadership and say, hey, this is where we're at and this is the threat that's coming down the pike and this is what it can mean for us. Use those headlines if you need to. Use different things. I think we as an industry need to get much better at communicating things to leadership before things happen. Yeah, sometimes it means that you're going to have to tell them that you told them so later. But A, you've covered your, you know, your ass and B, you have demonstrated the importance of fraud and the importance of your job. Give them a warning or a heads up that this could get really bad. Reiterate the current impact of account takeovers 
or the current and past impact of account takeovers on customer trust. I just replayed this episode a couple weeks ago or in the break about the case studies on account takeover because I thought it was such powerful information. But you can quote that one of the largest e-commerce marketplaces did a test and on average, account takeover, accounts that had been taken over or hacked, as consumers will say, spend over 60% less than they did the year before after their account's been taken over. And that is averaging all of the customers that just leave your platform altogether. That is specific to e-commerce, but I am sure that in banking, you can find very similar statistics too. You know, maybe assign an analyst to look that up within your system. What is the impact of account takeovers? Pick a sizable enough sample set to be able to tell your leadership, this is what happens when we don't catch it. So this is what we need to do. It's not just the loss of funds that we have to, not just the immediate transaction amount, the immediate account deposit amount that was withdrawn or transferred out of the account. It's all the times they're going to interact with us in the future. They change their behavior because they can't trust us anymore. What about the, and point out all the headlines of companies who, you know, have been kind of branded as not secure by customers on Reddit and Twitter and just headlines when accounts are hacked in quotation marks. I can certainly name off at least five companies that lost so many customers, not just current customers, but the possibility of new customers because of this. I mean, LastPass is a really good example, too. There are hundreds of tweets and Reddit posts of people sharing tips on how to get off of LastPass on how not to ever use them, on who to use instead. That's a good example too, right? What happens when customers don't feel secure anymore? Whether it's because of a data breach or because their account has been hacked or there's been account takeover. Most consumers don't know the difference. They just know, okay, well, you're not keeping my information safe. Suggest putting together an internal task force or a fraud squad, as some of the companies I know that listen to this call it, with all stakeholders to create a holistic approach. Almost like a, a tabletop exercise. If you're in InfoSec or cybersecurity, they often suggest doing tabletop expert exercises of, okay, we're breached tomorrow. What needs to happen? So that way you already have a communication plan. You already have a backup customer service help desk that you can, you, know, you already have a contract set up with a third-party customer service just to answer those phone calls. Or, you know, what are you going to do? Who's going to report it to the law enforcement? Who's going to all those things so that when it does happen or if and when, it does happen. They're ready. I really believe that we need to be doing this in fraud more than we ever have before. And I've been sharing this here and there with people, but I think that because of these really big threats right now, it's just something worth revisiting and thinking about. And it's the new year. So fresh start, right? So your group should include customer service, the finance team, InfoSec, development and engineering, operations, communications, etc. Your company may have specific departments that you also need to add to that. Give them a clear picture of the current status of account takeovers or, you know, whatever fraud issues you have. Maybe it's all of them. And then share the threats to increase this number by a lot with the LastPass hack, with the Twitter breach, with all the other ones that have come before it. And then put together a plan to improve all of the processes when and if ATOs will spike for your company from, you know, what the customer service response is going to be, how you're going to make those victim whole, what you're going to recommend, all of those things. That's kind of more the reactive approach. I also really think it's important, and I hope more marketing and communications departments get on board soon. I think it's important to consider a customer education and marketing campaign. There's been some companies that have done that in the past that not only has it been successful in 
helping consumers understand the importance of keeping their passwords more secure and not putting so much trust in online platforms and, you know, just doing even basic cyber hygiene. But it's also been helpful in building that customer trust and actually building more sales and more deposits within your company. When they know that you are providing that information and that they can rely on you to tell them what they need to know so that they can go do it, they'll trust you more. Don't just provide what to do. Don't just say, oh, update your password to something more secure. It's really important that you provide the how and the why. How do they do it? What's the best way that they do it step by step? And then why is it important? That's the piece that's always lost. And that's the piece that most humans need in order to do something, especially because, especially if you use LastPass and someone in my life you know, close to me does, and they're just like, well, what's the risk? Because it's just such a pain. And I'm like, I get that. But, you know, here's the risk. Oh, OK, I'm going to dedicate three hours of my day tomorrow to try to figure it out. So you have to provide the why. Otherwise, they're just going to think, OK, well, they tell me to change the battery in my smoke detector every six months too, but do I? Eh. And have I died from a fire? Eh. So no, I'm good. You know, just be realistic about human behavior, I guess. There's been some, you know, internal merchant bank studies and internal tests that have been successful. Like I said, not just with forcing resets and not just with preventing account takeovers, but also in customer spend and increased customer spend, increased deposit amounts with your financial institution rather than a competitor. You know, trust lost is going to equal dollars lost, but trust earned and gained is going to equal dollars gained for your company. I think that's really important to get across to leadership and other cross-functional teams now, rather than when you have to be in cleanup mode. I think there's just a big call to action as you start the new year. This data may not be in the wild just yet, but that gives us a little bit of time to assure that, it, that you're ready for it when it is in the wild. Prepare appropriately. That's my biggest call to action to fraud practitioners with this news and all the other news that's stacked against us with so many other things I'll be sharing more in the new year as far as there's just so many new tactics being used that it is we can't be on autopilot anymore. And I think that we've gotten comfortable in the last few years. I've seen this happen several times in my career. I was doing the math the other day and I started my first role in payments and fraud 18 years ago. So two decades, which I know in other industries isn't very long, but in this industry, it somehow makes me a veteran. <laughs> but I've seen it before where new technology has needed to be updated and upgraded because fraudsters catch up and they realize, oh, shoot, well, we're getting defeated more times than we're winning. So now we need to up our game. And whenever they up level, then we have to up level. And I would love to see a time when there's not billions of dollars lost during the time that they up level and we realize we need to. And it, there's just a lot there. And I'd love to see us as an industry get more to proactive than react. I know some organizations have gotten better at being proactive than reactive, but I think that as companies start to look at their year-end totals, whether their losses are calculated in chargebacks or calculated in dollars lost in write-offs or whatever the calculation is for how you identify losses, I think you're going to see it went up last year. And it's going to be in ways that you probably couldn't prevent or that your current processes couldn't identify. That's just going to keep getting worse. So with that, I'm turning my attention to the solution providers for the next few minutes of this podcast. And I'm sorry, guys, I know you think I pick on you. 
It is because I hear a lot. It's because a lot of fraud practitioners confide in me. And there are some of you who are really good. And those of you who are really dedicated to innovating your solutions and who want to have their solution, their salespeople have integrity and not just push them on these really insane and high pressure quotas and everything else. And those who also, once they have a customer, they are continually innovating and providing them with customer success and all of that. Those of you, I think most of you know who you are. I try to make a point when I hear a lot of good about a company to reach out to them and just say, hey, you know what? Your customers are really happy right now. Keep it up. It may not last forever. I've unfortunately seen companies over the last several years where they went from one of the top ones trusted by their customers to one of the least. And it's hard to punch. It's hard, especially when I create friendships with those people, because those are the solution providers that I choose to work with, whether it's in my own consultancy for go-to-market strategy or keynote speaking, or if it's as sponsors for the podcast. So it means I have to change things too. But really, that's up to you guys. That's up to the solution providers, which category you're going to be put in and what your customers are going to say. That's really have to say about it. So here I go into, I hope this doesn't get misread as a rant. This is really, really good advice that people pay me sometimes quite a bit of money for. So I'd suggest listening. Solution providers, I cannot say this enough. You need to be investing in research and development and innovations for your product as well as education for your support and customer service teams. I don't care if you've already had your exit. I don't care if you're close to your exit. I don't care if you've been acquired three times or if you've been acquired by a big company. You need to be, whoever's left from your current company needs to explain to the bigger company why this is so important. I hear a lot. I feel like sometimes I joke that I'm like the fraud psychiatrist or something or fraud therapist, I think is what I've said. And I'm grateful that people know that they can confide in me. And I start to realize, hmm, I've heard the same thing about the same company three times this week or this month, or I've heard it 10 times in the last three months. That thing is no longer a one-off, it's a pattern. And while I won't and can't disclose details, especially on the podcast, but I won't do it otherwise either, I'll never say even to paying clients of mine, uh, paying vendor clients, what specific companies say what. Never, ever. But my clients understand that and just appreciate the fact that if I say, hey, three companies have said this and I obscure it enough, they just know they need to fix it. They're not trying to figure out, well, who is it and what can we do? And well, we just need to take out their CEO to a state dinner or give them court side tickets again. Like none of those games, guys, just get a better product. Ooh, I get frustrated, but it's if you had to hear as much as I did, I think you'd get frustrated too. But I'm going to say a lot of you who are listening and probably a lot of solution providers that don't listen to this podcast too, have unhappy clients that have started to meet with your competitors. I haven't seen this many unhappy clients that are at the point, the tipping point where they're like, I need to see what else is out there and I'm ready to do what it takes to move to a different company ever at one time before. And I'm not being hyperbolic. Or if they're not just meeting with your competitors, they're probably also meeting with newer companies with updated technology and approaches that will be better solutions for the use cases and the fraud issues that they're experiencing right now. Just because your product could identify and prevent fraud in 2018, 19, 20, 20, et cetera, like that doesn't mean that it can identify the fraud methods we are and will be seeing this year and beyond. They're changing. I cannot stress that enough. And if you're not changing with it, you're going to be left behind. 
I can name at least six companies that pretty much are considered like, I mean, they're barely hanging on, but they're just hanging on because some companies haven't switched from them. They used to be top dogs and they aren't anymore. And that's starting to happen again. So fraudsters are well resourced and are actively working to circumvent the systems that have defeated them up until now. Consider this your call to action. As your clients meet with you in Q1 and they ask you how your product or products are you know, being innovated and how they're going to help them with this new type of fraud. And you know, don't just offer them a new sub product that's going to cost them more money. Like, how are you improving your tools? How are you listening to your customers? How are you hearing from your customer service and success team to improve it? How many people within your company do you have that actually understand fraud and how they how it works? Sometimes I'm surprised at even that alone, whether it's a data scientist or it's someone who's been on the practitioner side before or all these other things. Like, sometimes I'm like, do you even have anyone inside your company that actually knows how fraud works? Or is it all mostly, you know, 60, 70 percent marketing and salespeople that are talking about how good it works, but they don't actually know the details. They don't actually know how something's being fixed or how your product can actually identify. I am <laughs> frustrated with that because. The fraud practitioners, your clients cannot do this on their own. They need you guys. And if you're not going to do it, there's going to be a new company that's going to come behind and do it for you. And you're going to lose you know, a lot of your product value. It's going to there's a lot of things that will happen. So it'd be better for the practitioners as well if their existing products improved with the market and continually innovated as quickly or faster than the bad guys, than the fraudsters. You know, if they knew, oh, wow, these guys now have access to machine learning and AI and this is what they're doing with it. If they knew all of that and said, and this is how we're addressing it, you would keep those customers. They want that, too. They don't want to have to ask their leadership for more money and implementing new solutions and having to go through that whole process and getting engineering resources if, you know, that's what is needed and all of those things. They don't want that either. So I can't tell you how many times I'll go to conferences that are attended by a lot of merchants and have. Sometimes some of the most stoic people, some of the most, some people have really surprised me where I just don't think I'd ever expect to hear a compliment in my life from them. And that's okay. But they come up to me and say, Carice, thank you so much for being our voice. Because I wish you, I could say that, but I can't for so many reasons because of how big our brand is, because you know, our communications team doesn't let me, because it's going to cause problems with our vendors, et cetera. But thank you for saying it. And that's where that's coming from is that's what your customers want you to hear and want you to know. And it comes down to what Gail said a few weeks ago, and I'm this is going to be my new quote. Mediocre is not an option when the other side is continually innovating. And that's where I'm going to leave it because that doesn't just go for solution providers. It goes for practitioners too, for all of us. With this last pass breach in the last two weeks, with you know the Twitter hack and all the information that's going to be out with that and all the other breaches that have been put together and that are, you know, have now created these giant CRMs and databases for fraud organizations with other areas in the world that are having really, really bad financial crises. And they're realizing, wow, well, we can just steal money from Western countries and make so much more money. There's a perfect storm that has been brewing. And I think we're going to continue to see it in fraud in the next year. And we have to be prepared for it. So we can't just kind of put everything on autopilot. You need to continually look at your alert. What is the data telling you? What do you need to change? What are you not catching? And why are you not catching it? Are you prepared for this newer fraud that's coming down the pike where the bad actor might know everything from the person's password, their email address, their phone number, 
They might have access to their phone number for multi-factor authentication. They know their IP address. They, pro they might know their device if they were able to send them a targeted phishing email and have them click on a link with malware. Like think about worst case scenario. And if you're prepared for the worst case scenario, then you'll be okay. All right, that's where I'm leaving it because we're just about at 45 minutes. I knew I'd be getting it close, but I do hope that I have better news to bring you throughout this next year. But even if I don't, at least it's the information that I think you really need to know that when you're in your day to day, you may not have time to do your own research, but I'm hoping to be able to provide that for you so you can be ready for what you need to be ready for. And thanks again for trusting me guys with all your time and information. And I look forward to speaking with you more next week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.